Hello and welcome to the Irish Film London podcast. I'm your host, Neve Brannigan, and I'm joined with Jerry Maguire. How are you this week, Jerry? I'm not too bad, Neve. Thank you very much. Good, good. We missed you last week, but we're back here now today to chat about all things Irish film and TV. So first off, let's chat about some IFL events. We have um, a screening of The Cured, don't we, David Frayne's uh, feature film? We do indeed, yeah. So Irish Film London are partnering with uh, two great indie organisations in London called Last Frame Film Club and Token Homo. And between the two of them, they've put together um, quite a cool series of screenings that are they're called their queer horror nights so they've already done uh, a screening of frankenstein they did one of the more recent version of carrie and i think this is the next one on the roster but do check out the queer horror Nights series and if you want to go and catch david frayne's the cured at the castle cinema uh, tickets are on sale right now via the castle cinema website i believe it is on sunday the 13th of may and there are still a few tickets available I am reliably informed that David Frayne will be uh, taking part in our, uh, an online Q&A, so um, you'll get to see his gigantic face on the screen, even though he's not there in person. Um, but yeah, that should be good fun. Amazing. And then we have a few kind of big Irish releases into the world, well, especially into the UK mm-hmm. this week. Um, Colleen Keown, which is Quiet sure. Girl, yeah. uh, is going to be released uh, this weekend, isn't it? Uh, so at the time of us recording, it's a week until the release of mm-hmm. the film. Um, so there'll be a number of previews and stuff happening, um, but its official release date is next Thursday. So okay. Thursday the 12th and then general release. Uh, uh, is it general release? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's the 11th or 12th. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Whatever next Friday is. Yes, it says the 12th and the 13th of May, respectively. Oh, well then, say both of them were right. I was still right. Okay. Um, But yeah, look, that's really exciting. That's an Irish language film that's getting um, as wide as as possible release. Um, Curzon have done a great job of promoting it and getting it into cinemas. It's obviously playing at all the Curzon cinemas. Um, It's playing at some brilliant indie venues in London, including Riverside Studios, the brand new Garden Cinema in Covent Garden, which is very exciting. I dropped oh, in to say hello to those guys um, last week and they're putting um, and, quite, and calling Cune on and it's a lovely, lovely space to go and see uh, a film like this, a little boutique place with a beautiful bar um, and I know that there are a number of preview screenings happening at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith including uh, a couple of events which are there's Irish language films which are playing all of this coming weekend at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith. So they're they're doing a little season of films to celebrate the release of Van Colin Goon. So that includes Aract, another chance to see Tom Sullivan's great film that we had in November at our festival, and also two slightly older films which are Potching and a bilingual film called Kings which arguably, when we talk about and Colleen Kuhn being um, the first Irish language film released in the UK, Kings did get a wide point of release, um, but it's quite a few years ago and certainly not as much fanfare as this one. Um, but yeah, they're all playing this weekend at the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith. Yours truly will be down and um, I'll be on stage interviewing some 
some of the the directors and the filmmakers about that um, and talking about Irish language stuff. So if you're around Hammersmith, come down. We'd love to see you. And then also the release of Conversation with Friends is going to be happening, which I cannot wait for. And I'm also delighted because we have an option of watching it quite old school once a week or we can binge it. Yeah, I mean, obviously we'll binge it. I mean, obviously. (laughs) Which do you prefer though? Do you prefer a binge or do you like kind of like taking it all in and you know I know what you mean like I've got do you know what the thing is I think I've got more control over my binge Mm -hmm. I haven't gotten there I have not gotten there (laughs) (laughs) like I started re-watching Derry Girls from the start amazing Um, and I've been I have spent a bit more time on Netflix again this last few weeks Um, I've talked into Russian Doll which is good crack um, because there's a second series of that Mm. I managed to it is a lot of fun. I managed to do, I think once or twice I did two episodes a night. But I managed to look after myself and go to bed before midnight most nights, you know. Well, that's very mature. Well, you know, these grey hairs don't come from me. <laughs> but I think, I think I binged normal people because that was kind of peak pandemic. Yeah, um, that's, that's slightly different, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, the, that that was a lot. There was there was a lot going on there at that time. <laughs> so I think I might take a leaf out of uh, that book and uh, maybe space this one out because I think I I overdid it on the on the normal people binge. But yeah. that's going to be out on um, Sunday, the fifteenth of May, on BBC Three, um, and it's coming out on Hulu as well. But you will be able to binge it on the BBC iPlayer as well. Okay. Um, so that's also very exciting. Speaking of Derry Girls, have you been catching up with the new episodes? I have. It's so much fun. I didn't think it could get better. So much fun. And I can't wait for, did you see that there's going to be an extra episode about the mom and the auntie when they were younger? I did not see that. That's cool. Yeah, it's, and Shauna Higgins is actually playing the, the mom, which uh, I'm really excited about. That's going to okay. be so much fun. That's good. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm looking forward to that as well. So there's just like... There's big, there's big Irish stuff everywhere. Yeah. It's great to see. Definitely. And then on our kind of um, film and uh, screen industry news-wise, Screen <laughs> Ireland um, published a new sustainability plan for yes. the screen industry. So it's outlining sustainability and um, it kind of just outlines the agency's ambition to help work towards lowering the carbon footprint. Yeah. Um, and then just kind of like funding, like committing to funding projects that definitely have diversity and yeah. equity and inclusion, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's a really kind of ambitious project to launch. It is. It's an. It is an ambitious. It's full of ambitious targets, and it has like a really what feels to me like a really clear roadmap for how they want to get there. And like, look, sometimes on this podcast we talk about like slightly boring policy stuff like that mm. but um i think it's it's the kind of thing that that puts the irish film industry in the right place and sends us in the right direction like you know we've just talked about all these great things that are happening in irish film and tv and the benefit of that we can only really reap the benefit of that if we remain sustainable and like in in every sense of the word mm-hmm. and i think that it's just great that people are grabbing that bull by the horn so to speak and making sure that the next generation of of films are are better and better produced and more responsible and 
Yeah, you just love to see it. I think it's just, you know, just especially people outside kind of the film industry or the entertainment industry, you don't really think that an industry mm. like that is um, thinking about its carbon footprint and its sustainability, you know, and I think it's just, yeah. it's so important. So the fact that they're doing it, and like that, it doesn't kind of feel like a wishy-washy promise or, a, you know, yeah, well, we definitely want to uh, think about our sustainability. Like if you look at... Um, the article about it on Screen Ireland, it's got all of its steps, really what it wants to achieve, exactly. everything outlined, which is really, really impressive. Yeah, it is impressive. And so, like, you know, people have said it before, but, you know, we're a country that's associated with the word green. And if more stuff like this happens and we can genuinely be green and put out some green shoots for the future, then we'll remain that way. Absolutely. And then other really cool news is... Um, Irish films entering into the Cannes Film Festival and also Tribeca as well. So another kind of summer ahead of new big Irish films. Yeah, so a couple of big names on there. Um, Frank Berry's new feature, Aisha, which features Letitia Wright and Joshua Connor. That looks like a brilliant cast, a brilliant cast for a film. Um, everything that Joshua Connor is in, I really enjoy. So I'm looking forward to that. And Letitia Wright, obviously, an incredible actor. Mm -hmm. so looking forward to that and then the other one that's on the radar there is one called God's Creatures yeah um, that's going to be on in the director's fortnight at Cannes at Cannes yeah at Cannes so um, the first one's going to be in Tribeca right and that actually goes alongside Sinead O'Loughlin's short film Lamb yes and, and then God's Creatures then will be popping up in uh, the Cannes Film Festival so and that's going to be featuring uh, Paul Meskell our friend our Irish film friend Tony O'Rourke and um, Ashley Franchosi and also Emily Watson so really really strong cast there Big as well cast there. yeah so Aisha's in Tribeca and God's Creatures is in Directors Fortnite yeah yeah right I must keep that the right way around in my head <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, they're they're the big sort of two of the big festival contenders for for this year. So like Tribeca, Cannes, Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, South by Southwest. We've had representation at all of those big events this year. Um, Antonia Campbell Hughes's debut uh, feature. It is in us all. Was at South by Southwest um, a little while ago, featuring Cosmo Jarvis. Um, that's one that I'm really keen to get a look at. Um, yeah, there's some there's some pretty big stuff coming out this year. Definitely, and then also we have our Galway Film Flat to look forward to as well. Oh my God, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, there's conversations starting about the flat already. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we're, we're what are we two months away? Mm -hmm. T minus two months to the flat. Oh my God. Yeah, Exciting properly times. in person, fully open this year, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say I'd say they'll probably put some stuff online as well, but as a whole, yeah, definitely in person again, which will be yeah, yeah. amazing. So speaking of film uh, festivals, do you want to remind any of our listeners who might have a film on their hands? Well, I'm very glad you gave me that opportunity, Nave, because I totally do want to remind everyone who's got a film on their hands to give me their films. Um, Irish Film London is open for submissions uh, and at the moment we're open for submissions across two different categories. The first one of those is our Irish Film From Home online 
opportunity. So the Irish Film From Home platform, as any of our listeners probably know, is our own dedicated VOD platform where we screen uh, new and old Irish films and we give them a broader audience to a, a broader global audience. Uh, and that's just like something that we do. It's a sort of a background project that's running all the time, but the official submission window is open right now. More importantly, the end of May is your early bird deadline for official selections for the Irish Film Festival London in November. So that is once again taking place at venues all across the city of London. We have five days of film screenings, industry events and an an award ceremony which takes place at the Embassy in London. You have to be in it to win it so please get your films into us right now on Film Freeway. If you submit before the end of May you get the early bird rate it's the cheapest way to get it to us Um, please don't wait until near the deadline or after the deadline in case you've got any any technical issues or anything like that we want to see your films sooner rather than later so we can start watching them and start talking about how great all these Irish films are Uh, and the one thing to say about that as well is that uh, anyone who submits their film to the festival is automatically in contention for the Irish Film London Awards at the Embassy so if you get your film in to us you can be in consideration for an award Uh, we want to hear from anyone who's Irish or living in Ireland or has Irish talent attached to their project, we are not very picky. We will we will consider all sorts of films for the programme. So yeah, get those into us now. Filmfreeway.com forward slash Irish Film Festival London. Amazing. And I can say, speaking from experience, that um, the awards itself are worth it. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for the speeches alone. For the the speeches alone. For the person who presents the awards, it's worth it. I love it. What's her name? Neve something. I think it's Neve Brannigan. Um, (laughs) But that leads me on to my interview. I hope everyone enjoys. I am joined with the director of new Irish horror film, The Cellar, Brendan Muldowney. So thanks, Jerry, and I hope everyone enjoys. Nice one. See you next time, Neve. Bye. If you're part of the regular Irish Film London audience or want to get more from your experience, consider joining our growing family of members for a range of exciting benefits. Irish Film London is a non-for-profit organisation. Our mission is to promote the best new Irish film to audiences all over the UK and with the help of this podcast, the world. If you become a festival friend or a festival champion, you get perks like discounted tickets for films and events, free access to Irish Film From Home films and invites to networking events and so much more. So check it out now. Hi, Brendan. Thank you so much for coming on to chat to me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's go right back and uh, I guess talk me through the inspiration and the the birth of the film. I know it's kind of connected to uh, to one of your short films, uh, one of your many short films, The the Ten Steps, right? Yeah, um, The Ten Steps was a short film we made. When I say we, to Connor Barry and myself who have Savage Productions, it was SP Films at the time we made The Ten Steps. It was probably one of the last shorts we made or I made. Uh, in 2004 and it went out into the world in 2005 and um, it was really successful for us. Uh, it won Best Short at the Sitges International, or the Sitges Fantastic Film Festival, which is a hardcore horror festival. 
and there was many more uh, festivals like that. The Ravina Festival does it like it did really well on the genre uh, circuit, but it also at the same time was in these children's film festivals. So it was in the New York International Children's Film Festival where it won best best film there as well. So I don't know. We knew there was something special about it that it was sort of hitting a broad audience. And and uh, and over the years, I've seen I've seen it taught in schools still to this day. Even just recently on Twitter, I saw. I saw it in a in a school in Barcelona. They're um, using something called story blocks or something. I don't know what these are, but they're obviously a storytelling device they use to teach storytelling. And the ten steps, they're all coming up with alternative endings and stuff for the short film. And over the years as well, I'd noticed someone else had it up on YouTube, and it used to be up on a platform called Atom Films, which is gone now, but it was a short platform. And there was a lot of commentary, sort of people asking, "I wonder what happens next." So really that was where it came from. I wonder what happens next. And I, over the years, like from 2007 on, I've tried writing different versions of it. There's been bits of interest from the States over the years. You know, it's been hot for a while and then we, we it goes nowhere and we let it drop and, and it's gone again. And so it just was the right time. That when Absolutely. It happened. Absolutely. I was going, cause I was going to ask then kind of what was the, the process from script to screen and kind of, the length of it from that but it kind of ever since the the success of 10 steps it's kind of always been mulling mulling away well, look it's gone through so many different versions and um you know in 2007 the the film board had a thing called the catalyst project and uh i entered two scripts into that one one was savage which was my first feature in the end and the other was a version of the 10 steps which was just a sort of like the short film extended so it didn't really work because there wasn't enough, you know, it's just not enough in the short film. And that's the beauty of the short film. You don't have to really get into the characters. You don't have to get into the mythology. It's just a simple idea. But um, so that didn't work. And then over the years, then when we did start getting a bit more serious, I think in around 2016, I, I wrote a version and it had the short film as a prologue and a new family moved in and you know that wasn't really working the characters weren't just weren't working for anybody and also the mythology i've gone through so many different versions there would have been uh, irish mythology was in there at one stage instead of like at the moment it's mathematics but you know there was druids and balor the one-eyed king of the fomorians was was in there at one stage um and then it was just really like to maybe script editing meetings and processes like that you know where they put you under a lot of pressure and I realized that, you know, I couldn't really answer them because you can always try answering and like, you know, and you can, you're just really talking, your mouth's moving and they're going, that's not, it's not fixing the problem. Um, so they don't really let you off the hook. And so I realized that the easiest way to get through this and have a character that was strong was to have a parent, the mother, who's desperately looking for her daughter, because it sort of solved a lot of things. And it's a very immediate, empathetic sort of hook where people understand and, you know, add into that, that she feels a little guilty because she hasn't really been present. And already like, you know, the characters are getting richer. So it was really when that happened. And then I think as well, when I decided that the mythology was gonna be interconnected with mathematics, that I think it all started to fully come together. And I know the producer, Connor Barry said the first day he read the, the treatment, cause I had done a lot of different versions of this. And the first day he read the treatment of this, he said, uh, he thought he, we were going to make it. So, you know, that's coming from him. 
That's great that it, find, it kind of a little piece of the puzzle then just kind of clicked in and because it can, I think people are, never really realize how how many drafts and processes and treatments and stuff that films go through, you know, before before it kind of it feels like, OK, now we have it. Depends. Um, it depends yeah. on the script because some scripts are um, they're clearer in their idea. They're more original in their idea. They're a very, you know, simple, direct idea personal story or something and there's no real way around it you might change little things whereas when you're writing for want of a better word a commercial movie that really doesn't have any hard themes or personal connection it can go anywhere you can change it any way you like so that's where you nearly can end up rewriting and taking things everywhere so Absolutely. And so you briefly touched then obviously on the mother and the, the main character looking looking for her daughter. So what was the the kind of casting process like? Because you've got such great cast there with Aisha Cooper, who can, can almost be called a bit of a scream queen now at this stage, which I think is really, really cool. And and Owen Mackin and stuff as well. What was the journey like getting getting them on board? It was pretty easy, to be honest with you. Like um, Owen, I've known since ages and he was in my first film. He had a smaller role in, the, in Savage. So I've known him for years. So also Richie Bulger, one of the producers, uh, you know, has worked with Owen, produced his, his film, uh, Here Are the Young Men, uh, was the, you know, so, so then, you know, and Connor, the other producer who I, I, I have a company with, knows Owen very well. Like, so it's very, it was very easy getting Owen. And then Owen's agent is also Alicia's agent. So it was very easy to get a script to her. So it was quite easy, um, you know, obviously, it could have gone wrong. Alicia could have been wrong, but she was really nice when I spoke to her. She was anything I thought. She was exactly the same ideas about the character. And, you know, even stuff that I was sort of skirting around and did, I was I was leading up to, she would say before I'd say it, like she'd say, I'm thinking of dyeing my hair for the character. And I was going, okay, great. I didn't know how I was going to say that. <laughs> um, and then, you know, so that the, the leads were very easy, but then um, it was a little harder I mean, obviously, it's, you know, some of the sort of um, cameo roles are the sort of day players uh, like Mary Mullen and Aaron Monaghan and Andrew Bennett. They're like, in a way, uh, they, well, we sent them the script and they were on, but they're great to get because they're just brilliant and they just arrive for the day, which is very hard to do, to jump into a crew that you don't know and just deliver. And they were all brilliant. The hardest was probably um, casting the actors who played the two children of the of the family because of covid we couldn't we couldn't do any live auditions so it was like tapes would come in of lots and then i would sing you know i'd shortlist down to maybe three and then how did that work then there might have been a zoom a meeting like this where you're trying to give directions and they're acting over the zoom and it's not like the thing is it's not ideal but the two uh, actors that I chose, Dylan and Abby, were so good that really, you know, talent sort of shines through, comes through the screen. So in a way, I was really lucky there. And we had a great casting uh, director, Emma Gunnery. So. Absolutely, because I was going to ask about the, the the two young actors because I think it's it's quite tough to find really, really good young actors, let alone because horror is such a specific genre as well, you know, let alone actors that young actors can kind of just get on board, 
you know, come in, you know, with all of these mad ideas and, you know, just give everything. And the two of them are just fantastic and they're really, really great. And um, another kind of character, I guess, in a way that I wanted to ask about is the house. Because oh, yeah. um, it definitely does feel like it just becomes a bit of a character. Um, it's incredible. And uh, what was the kind of the recce process of that? Or did you know where you wanted to shoot it or had you come across it before or where was well, it shot? Well, part of the financing structure was the RAP fund, which is shooting in the West, the Western counties of Donegal, Mayo, Sligo, Galway, Clare, Roscommon, Leitrim, I think. Uh, I, I hope I haven't missed any counties there, but I think that's all of them. Um, anyway, that's their, their whole thing is to fund films, is to, to partly fund films that will shoot over there. So it's to decentralise the filmmaking from Dublin incentivize us to go and shoot in, in, in these counties. And when we went, we're scouting, I think we scouted first in Sligo because they were saying Sligo would be a good place. And then it transpired that uh, Roscommon wasn't getting enough love. As in, when I say that, what you know, there's lots of films using the rap fund, but say a lot of them have used Galway or Mayo. Yeah. Like normal people would, I think, shot in Mayo. And so, so in a way they have to make it fair. So each county within the, the scheme gets you know so we were we were pointed towards Roscommon so really it was looking in Roscommon and uh, and I had looked in Sligo and I hadn't found a house I was happy with so funnily enough in Sligo we looked or in Roscommon we looked and there was probably maybe 10 of these big houses I'm not sure I'm just that's a number I'm just pulling out of the air but um yeah when we look I was looking for a house with a long corridor with a door I knew I wouldn't get a cellar in the house we'd have to build and I just wanted that long corridor to a door and I couldn't find it in any of the houses and then the closest one when we went into that house there was a big beautiful open I mean the outside looks great but the inside has this lovely open hallway with this open staircase and had a long hallway leading to a dining room door and another corridor but you know the production designer said look we can build we can put a wall we can build our own cellar door and we can put in our own cloakroom sort of area because obviously they'd have to turn left or they'd have to turn left or right. They couldn't go straight down because there is no stairs. Mm. So we were having to match this to the studio, to the set. Um, so, yeah, when we walk, look, when I walked into that place, it was uh, immediately obvious. Everybody liked it. There was no arguing. There was, you know, from, you know, the DOP to the production designer to myself, we, we all just liked it, yeah. So a bit of movie magic was done there with the with, with the cellar door. Yeah. Um, and so I guess what was the difference or did you find a difference between because the house is quite, you know, you're in that kind of one location and it's it's so specific to the film, con contrasting to some other films like you've done, like The Pilgrimage, which was kind of such an epic with, you know, vast landscapes and kind of bigger casts and that kind of stuff. How did you find the difference or did you um, find a difference in uh, shooting those kind of different films, different scales? Well, I mean, obviously, there's a huge difference in many different things, like the scale of pilgrimage between mm. the amount of just cast, like uh, every day that you'd have to cover and always being outside in the elements, um, stunts, horses, special effect. I mean, period cost. I could go on and on. But, yeah. but it's, it, this is very different because it's uh, present day. And uh, yes, you could say it's all contained in one house. The common thing with all of them is time. And I think that's really what directors deal with all the time is running out of time on a low budget anyway like I have to say it's the always the biggest problem is running out of time to shoot to get your scenes to get all the shots you want and the biggest difference I noticed was 
in pilgrimage, my call sheet for a day might say, scene 20. That was it. I'd be, or if I was unlucky, I'm not unlucky, it might say scene 20 and scene eight, because we'd found that the scenes were short enough that we'll do one before lunch. And then we've got, we chose this, the scene, the, the locations really well that we could shoot one scene here, but without moving the crew, which takes a lot of time, we can shoot another scene round the corner. So, you know, it, it was sort of very economical like that. But what I'm trying to say is, is my call sheet would say scene 20, maybe for the day. And then uh, on the 10 steps or the cellar, as it's called now, my call sheet might say scene two, scene four, scene three, scene 11, scene nine, scene 20, scene 21, scene 36. Things like, it, it might have 20 different lines on it. And each of them requires a costume change, a makeup change. Like it was really, really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you might think as you're in a house that it's, it's all, you know, you're there. And we were there for three of the weeks. So it was two weeks out, but um, maybe maybe a tiny bit longer than three weeks. But um, it might have been like 17 days in the house. But the thing is, the way we were shooting it, the way we wanted it to look, is that if we moved from the sitting room to the hall, it wasn't just like, OK, let's all walk outside the door and start shooting now. If there's an hour's pre our lighting and, and preparing and dressing the sets are even longer sometimes. So you know, my rule there was, was really, was only two locations within the house per day. So, but because there would be lots of scenes in these different rooms, we would try and, it was, it was more, it was just more finicky. That's the best way of describing it, more finicky. Interesting. And I think like the film, it definitely has that really kind of classic horror style, film style to it with the kind of a modern vibe on it. And it feels very atmospheric and, and, and really elevated. I really, really, really enjoyed it. You know, we've got the old house that they got cheap in the auction and the character who senses something wrong and isn't believed until it gets really bad. And then the outside help coming in. And and I think the film has a really great pace, which I think is really important. You know, we kind of start into the action quite early on which is great because it really grips us you know we're really invested but I wanted to um, chat about the score in the film because I'm always really fascinated with horror film scores and how important they are to the genre and because you know the way sometimes people say you know it's not half as scary if you watch it on mute you know because the score can almost like that again with the house become another character so what was the what was the scoring process like for that with your composer and stuff well you know, Stephen McKeown, the composer, I have worked with since 2001. He did, uh, I, I saw a short, I think it was Frank Berry's short, The Black Suit, disappeared now, you'll never see it. But I remember noticing the music in it and going, that was, that's really good. And, um, and I knew also Kling Films at the time, uh, Damien O'Donnell had made a film called 35 Aside. And I think it was also Stephen. So I was noticing Stephen's name on shorts uh, he also did a feature for Cahal Black called Korea. Anyway, I just noticed his name and I contacted him and I said, if no money, would you do it? And he said, yeah, no problem. So he was really open. And for years, Stephen was really open to working with people on their shorts for free. Um, so he did Innocence for me into, into came out in 2002. Um, and I worked with him then on every short after that, apart from one of them, which didn't have music in it. I worked with him on all the shorts. I worked with him on all of my features, except for actually, I've just realized but there was a, a co-production we did with Holland, Dutch co-production, and we needed to use a composer from Holland there. So he 
he didn't do that one, Love Eternal. But anyway, I've worked with Stephen on all of them and he, he did Pilgrimage for me, won an IFTA for Pilgrimage. Um, he's, he's brilliant. So um, what was it like? Do you know, because I sort of know him so well, it's nearly like you just know. And That's also, safe. <laughs> yeah, but and maybe with certain films, I might sit with him for more and really like try and get in, you know, get him under the skin of how I'm thinking. But in a way, you know, it wasn't that I was worried. Like, it's not as if I was making a subtle film or trying to be different. I was making a commercial horror film. So, like, Stephen, he can do that in his sleep. You know, he's just done the hole in the ground. So um, so I knew it was it, everything was okay. So I just, I, I mean, how was it? I think I gave it to him. I came out when he said he was ready. And when I came out, the only thing I noticed was, was that I really liked the sort of second half. And in the first half, I think I said to him, that he was being too uh, respectful. He was sort of keep, you know, he and he was saying, yeah, but I'm just trying to like, you know, keep it low key, let, allow you hear what they're saying. And even in some parts in the second half, he was saying, I'm trying to, you know, I don't want to overpower the dialogue there. And I, I was just going, look, there's no point, Stephen. There's like, you know, it's not, we're not making a subtle film. To use the quote from Spinal Tap, turn it up to 11. I mean, that was really, and once I gave him that sort of note, that permission, I went back the second time to hear it and yeah then it was like it was just sort of pounding stuff yeah amazing and how did you kind of build that trust with your performers because I imagine shooting a horror I imagine shooting a horror can be completely different to an action or a drama because there has to be a lot of kind of trust there in in the post-production you know the score the effects and the kind of the building of suspense and stuff like that what was what was that like on set kind of building setting those kind of atmospheres for uh, for the performers well, you know, whether, you know, if whether it's trust or atmospheres, like the thing is, I mean, I don't know how other directors work with actors, but in a way I don't really, I mean, look, they are doing a different job to everyone else in the crew. There is a, an emotional element to what they're doing that you've got to be aware and respectful of. But having said that, I do sort of treat them just as anybody, as people. So in, in a way that's, you know, my approach and I don't really over try and overcomplicate things. I think if you cast well, you sort of got it. I don't mind some actors. Are, I want to discuss their characters way more and some don't. Uh, and I'm open to that. I'll have the, I have the answers to nearly all the questions. Um, and I do think that really by the time you get on set, all of that stuff should be out of the way and everyone knows what they're doing. And then really all you're really doing is is... is is giving very small fine tuning notes, whether, you know, just making sure everyone's keeping on, on track with the tone and everything of where or the pitch of where they should be within the sort of the dynamics or the arc of the whole film. Um, and, you know, with trust, like, I don't know, well, you see, I've known Owen and Owen knows my work. So in a way that probably helps. And, and as I say, yeah, I just, I don't try and over control them, you know, mm -hmm. and I, and, so I'll only really step in or say something if, if it's just, and I do know with Alicia, she said it dur during one of the interviews that she had been a bit pent up and she was really ready to go after two weeks quarantine. And in the very first scene, she was sort of really given it socks. And my only note was, was, was just, let's try one where it's just a little more content. I, I'm a fan of bringing acting down most of the time. Anyway, I'm not, you know, I, I sort of my my uh, sensors of worry go off when I start to see things too much, unless it's a really dramatic scene. But otherwise, I start to I, I like to 
keep things a little more contained. That's just my own personal. Absolutely. Well, I think for 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 a film that's kind of such a specific genre, you know, being being a horror film, the performances are are really beautiful. Like they're really lovely and kind of understated and but in the right places, you know. Um, and you kind of briefly mentioned quarantine and stuff there, but obviously I imagine when when uh, that was when she was coming over from from America. But was there any kind of issues with COVID or back put, putting the film back or anything like that, or was it kind of quite nice and smooth? Yeah, we were supposed to shoot. Uh, we were supposed to shoot in the summer uh, or in the spring. So and it was cancelled. And obviously we were we were scouting in February and we knew that this was coming but nobody wanted to believe it but then may or march obviously was all locked down but you know it there's a couple of things there one is okay it's the latest six months but if i had shot in the summer i would have had no um night time as in because i shot in november i was able to schedule the days so that you know when i say lunch lunch would have been you know late wasn't like lunchtime so we would have done five hours daylight taking a break eaten and then uh, shot five hours in darkness and it still didn't bring us past 12 o'clock which is where it gets really expensive for the producers the producer they just won't let you shoot past 12 well i'm sure if you have the cash you can and i ha have before i shot two weeks of night shoots but that doesn't seem to happen anymore it's very expensive so um uh, so that was an advantage there um yeah, I mean, look, I had to, we all had to sort of go down and stay there away from our families for a long time as well. Um, but, you know, there was, and, and also wearing masks is difficult every all day long, especially with, with glasses. I, yeah. I reading glasses, but they fog up when I'm looking at the monitor. Um, what else? Uh, you know, testing twice, three times a week is a pain. And we did catch one case of COVID at the very last week and it was grand, didn't spread to the set. So it works, the testing. But, you know, the advantages were that um, in Roscommon, I had written like an advertising agency. It's very hard when you're in Roscommon to find a building that's going to look like a sort of city, you know. Uh, so it was very hard, Like, but yet there was a place called Roscommon County Council. It's a very modern building, beautiful building. Everything you see in the film from the police station, the outside of the school, staircase the advertising that's all in Roscommon County Council and it's so interesting the building because there's different parts that look different all around it so um because of COVID obviously they were all working from home so we were able to get in so that's another thing that you know that was an advantage so having to shoot in November and having to shoot during COVID was an advantage in many mm. ways yeah a lot of pros and cons for sure mm. and you've written um you've written a lot of the films that you've directed um and in this a particular case you wrote directed and yeah produced as well how do you find juggling all of those roles at the same time or kind of are you able to to switch off one and click into another or what's uh, what's that like well the producing role is a sort of producer in name only like it's the exact producer it's not really i mean it's one of these things they give out like candy to people but it's nice to have gotcha. um the writing and directing is grand because like you know a lot of the time you're writing and that's what you do between in between making films it, you know it's a long time in between making films uh sometimes so hopefully but anyway it's uh, so that's fine I, I i you know i've i've done written a lot like a lot more than has been made i would never say i'm the best writer in the world but i've definitely picked up a lot of skills and i i I definitely know how to navigate it and, and I can talk the talk as well. I know all the script writing books. And so um, 
but I, I definitely write for a reader rather than for the director. Even though there, is, I do, I, I'm a fan of a sparse writing style, which it would be, you know, not chunks of paragraphs, line by line, and so it can end up. Even when I'm then shot listing, it's very handily also sort of broken into beats and is nearly ready to shot list. Um, so I don't find it hard at all. And I don't find it, I'm never precious about stuff. If people want to change lines, that's fine. Um, so yeah, and I, and I can be brutal and, you know, and, and it's and the process of being a storyteller, like a, an editor, or sorry, a, a writer doesn't end there. It, it goes into the editing process, which actually can even be the toughest part of where you're cutting stuff out of your, your story, you know? So, I, I mean, thankfully in this, this time round, everything we shot ended up in the film. And I think that the only other time I had that experience was with Savage. Um, on the other two films, you know, we're talking 45 minutes. And when I say 45 minutes, it's not like we're talking whole scenes, which took whole days to shoot, have just disappeared from the films. And it's, it, it's sort of very heartbreaking because not only is story stuff going, but you realize the waste of resources it was because mm. you had a whole crew shooting for a day and yet you ran out of time in a scene that's in the film and yet you could have used all that time but you, you never know beforehand what's gonna well you should but it doesn't always work like that absolutely i can only imagine and have you found kind of any major differences uh, to when you direct someone else's writing uh, like do you find any more pressure or is it actually quite nice to just kind of separate from from script to, to director, no? No, you know, I don't really because uh, I haven't had to do anything that I wasn't 100% behind. Mm. So I don't know how directors are, you know, if they're doing something for the cash or I don't know how they feel about that because I haven't had to do that. I've only, I directed a short film, which Connor uh, Barry, the, my producer uh, wrote years ago. And I uh, did Pilgrimage, which Jamie Hannigan wrote. And the thing is, uh, you know, I was in from the ground level with Jamie. I developed it with him. We spent many times talking about it. So I, in a way, feel ownership over many things in there. And I understand, you know, once you understand the script, you know, really well, there's not a problem directing it. You know, you, you can answer any question anyone comes to you with. So I, I, I don't know how it would be if you were parachuted into a job, you know, a month before it shoots and you're having to answer questions and you nearly have to go back to the writer and ask them, why is, what is the, you know, that would be hard, I think. But um, I haven't, ha I haven't noticed any difference because I've been so embedded in, in the scripts that I've been involved in. Absolutely. Well, that's what you want. Mm. Um, I know you briefly touched on it um, before, and I just wanted to ask with the kind of mythology kind of element in the film, because it's so, it has to be kind of so detailed and fleshed out. Did you find that you nearly had to write that separately to the script, you know, to, to make sure that kind of all the, the details and the and the little bits were in it and then kind of slotted in or did it they both just kind of fit in together? Because it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite detailed. You know, I can't remember the exact, I know I wrote a treatment. I think mm. I wrote a treatment. So that's probably, and that treatment, you know, wouldn't, would have been focusing on all that mythology and stuff. But like, in fairness, like the mythology is sort of hokum. It's nonsense, really. Like, I mean, it, 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 yes, there's some thought behind it and there's some logic the way it's but but it is sort of uh it, it's nearly like a red herring or a, a MacGuffin nearly just to get a, a a demon at the end yeah but um did I find it hard no I I you know because I had to write a treatment and I was never a fan of writing treatments I have written them 
Well, I think it was an advantage in this time round and uh, just recently for another project we were doing uh, for a, an application, I was forced into writing a treatment. I think, again, it was the best thing that ever happened. So I really resent and resist writing treatments, but actually I'm starting to warm to them because I think they help with what the question you're asking there, how do you construct something? I think they help with that sort of the plan, basically, yeah. And I don't want to necessarily ruin it for anyone, but we kind of briefly touched on it at the very beginning with it's kind of, un, un, it is quite an unusual ending in the sense of that kind of, you know, what happens next or which can be really oddly satisfying, you know, that you don't get what you want um, from the ending, you know, that kind of conclusion or, or resolution. Uh, was that something that you uh, you really wanted to have in in the film that kind of leave it up to the to the audience of making up maybe what hap might happen next or well you know that came really from the original short film mm. um like so the script didn't come from characters it came from the original short film and, and it was a plot device and you know if i was going to extend that it was like how do i end it because like that the end of the short film has been the strong thing that everyone loves so how do i do what do i do to top it mm. and uh, originally my idea was well can I pull the same thing off again, but just differently, maybe visually rather than because it's done with sound in the, in the short film. So really, that's how I was thinking. And I just knew that that wasn't enough. It was like good, but it wasn't enough. And then one day I was just looking at Escher paintings or drawings online or something. You know, the, the Escher drawings where the staircases all loop into each other. And I remember it was that when I just went, yeah, maybe I could do something. <laughs> I can do something with this. So in a way, what I'm really saying is it was all plot based. Like, so I was reverse engineering back from these twists mm. when I was dealing with that. And that's probably what made it hard in, in all along was, you know, because, you know, really the characters should be driving plot. Whereas in a way with this, I wasn't that way at all. It was plot driving character all the time. So. And so with the nature of the podcast, I usually like to ask my guests if there was a movie um, in their life that had a big impact, I guess, on their lives, if there was ever a movie. Because I don't like to ask, what's your favorite film? You know, because it mightn't be a favorite, but it could be one that you remembered as a kid or, you know, remembered to, to go, oh, God, I want to be a filmmaker. Um, and and or uh, if you have a favorite Irish film. Well, you know, when, you know, I have a list on my phone and the problem is, is many of these films at different parts of my life where, mm. you know, you know, like I could say Star Wars got me opened to, because I went to the, see that in the, in the cinema so many times, you know, because mm. we used to go at birthday parties as kids, we, you know, I remember going, that the thing was go to Star Wars, go to McDonald's. I went to bed 10 times in my primary school. Um, but that wasn't, I didn't think of making films. Uh, I remember watching Rosemary's Baby, uh, you know, and lots of many, many, many films that I can't even remember now growing up, you know, just late at night as I was a teenager. But I do remember watching The Wicker Man, you know, I can't remember what age, and thinking that there's, you know, there's definitely more going on here. And just starting to think, you know, having an interest. I, I mean, I could go on and on right because there was things like you know the breakfast club even taxi driver was another one that made me go oh wow this um and then you know when i started studying i think psycho and rear window had a huge effect on my film and it's still to this day 
I'm a real fan of what the camera can do because of Hitchcock, you know. Mm. Um, I could go on and on here, right? Like, because I've got so many films from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Kubrick, you know, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. But then when I was in college uh, in Dunleary, I remember a short film about killing really having a, a profound effect on me as well. And also the Battle of Algiers. Um, you know, then I left college and I, I was finding it very hard to make a film. I'm skipping over loads of stuff here, like the vanishing persona. Mm. Um, but I was finding it hard to, you know, get excited and I couldn't get a feature made. And I remember starting to, I remember watching Gaspar Noe's film, uh, Soul Contra 2, I Stand Alone. Now, you look, it's not a perfect film by any means, but it, it had a profound effect on me and it's visceral feeling. And I think I took that into making uh, Savage, you know, mm. Um Again, I've got so many, like I'm just skipping through. I can just see films here, like all the way through. But So I won't bore you with them. No, it's great. I, I go off and take notes about what everyone has said. So it's great. <laughs> I'll be making my the, own list. The thing is that there's so many films on this. Well, there's about 30 films on this list, but mm. each one of them I can pinpoint. Like I'm looking here, I see Boye, Get Carter, Tyrannosaur, uh, all of these. And then there's some... Um, Tarkovsky films there as well but and and you know very recently I don't know why but I keep going back to the um that film Arrival um I really love that film and mm. um anyway I I could talk for ages but the reason I have so many is that each one of them individually at a moment in time mm -hmm. has a, a, an effect on you see not just making you want to make films you've got to want to keep making films and, you know, there's periods in my life when I've become disillusioned or whatever. So and every so often the film does come along and, and just makes you go, oh, yeah, this is why you're making films, you know. Yeah, I think as well, you can watch a film, you know, you can be in one frame of mind one day and watch a film and take it completely different if you saw it. You know, it yeah. depends on where you are in your life as well and, and how you receive it. And yeah, so absolutely. So, you know, favorite Irish film, I, I you know, I remember when going to see uh, In the Name of the Father in the cinema and I went back the very next day to see it because I liked it so much mm. but I wouldn't say it's my favourite and then I really loved the Neil Jordan's The Butcher Boy as well and I had read the book before that I loved it as well but actually if I was push come to shove uh, and I was to ask now it's not an Irish director but I do remember at festivals being asked you know what do you recommend as an Irish film and I, I remember it was in Sitges one year and I said uh, Hunger mm. so I really think Hunger I have to say just outbeats everything just it's just yeah, incredible one of the most powerful films i've ever seen yeah absolutely well brendan thank you so much i really really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to chat to me and here at irish film london we wish you all the best with all of your future su successes and hopefully we will have you on here again very soon so thank you so much thank you thanks a million bye 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 And that's it for this week's interview. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you really enjoyed it. Thank you to Culture Ireland and the Irish Emigrant Support Programme. Myself and Jerry will be back in a fortnight with a brand new interview. See you then.